So longevity means not only having more birthdays, but also having good quality of life along the way, right? So we want a good, healthy lifespan, not just a long lifespan. If you're gorked out, you know, at 100 years old, or you are blind 100 years old, that would not be worth it. So I think the key to longevity, and you know, this is such an important and popular topic, I think, and it's really driven by science. There's a lot of really exciting things about longevity. I want to make sure people don't forget that you want to, we want to actually be able to enjoy our lives even as we live longer. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Dr. William Lee. Dr. Lee is an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, The New Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and impacts care for more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. His TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer?, has garnered more than 11 million views. His newest book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, Burn Fat, Heal Your Metabolism, and Live Longer, will be released tomorrow. Today on the podcast, Dr. Lee and I discuss how to improve your diet quality, how to optimize your diet for longevity, why it's so important to eat a high-fiber diet, why you may want to avoid the carnivore diet, why excess body fat is harmful for your health, how to improve your metabolism, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. William Lee to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. I'm great to be on. I'm happy that you're here too. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are going to appreciate hearing from you is that a lot of your work is based on using food as medicine, using food to help people um, live healthier lives and live longer. And I think a good place for us to start is it's no secret that people struggle with what to eat. You know, the obesity epidemic continues to get worse and worse. People's habits continue to get more unhealthy and unhealthy as the years go on. What would you say would be like five tips that you could share with the audience on how people can improve their diet quality? Yeah, happy to give you the five tips, but let me kind of frame this by saying there is so much negativity associated with food. I'm coming at this from a completely different perspective. I would say negativity was out there and also misperceptions and and lack of accurate information. So I like to kind of turn the entire formula around and come at this with, how do we not fear our food, number one? And number two, how do we actually use the facts and the science to really be able to inform uh, how we can embrace food instead? And, you know, this has to do with my background as a physician, as a scientist, and as somebody who's actually been involved with biotechnology and developing cancer treatments and diabetes treatments and treatments for blindness for almost 30 years, the reality is, is that food, in fact, is really one of the most powerful healthcare interventions that we can do for ourselves. And five tips I will give you right up front that could be really useful is, and this is sort of, you know, really across the board for anyone who has to eat, which is everyone, I would give you the five general principles. Number one, stay hydrated because dehydration actually makes everything in your body work harder. And so if you want your food to work for you, you actually want to make sure your body has enough water content to be able to keep all those metabolic processes functioning really well. Number two, I would say eat what you like, but make sure that most of what you eat and the priority of where your head goes when you're choosing something, making good choices, really falls in the category of what we call plant-based foods, which is pretty broad. I mean, there are hundreds of foods that are plant-based and doesn't have to be broccoli and kale. It could be beans. It could be mushrooms. It could be onions. It could be garlic. All the things that you think hark back to those traditional delicious recipes that came from 
the grandmothers of the Mediterranean, whether it's Italy or Greece or Spain or France or Asia, whether it's Japan or China or Thailand. I mean, all those delicious things that you might see in a menu. I want people to think about healthy eating as when you look at a menu or when you actually are shopping, look for the things in the produce section first or look for the things that actually have vegetables in them. They don't have to be the only thing, but if you use that as a kind of a filter, you're going to be doing something really good for you. That's the second thing. Third, I would say to the extent possible, avoid ultra processed foods. And we all have things that we like that we grew up with that are snacky type of foods. And we all have lives that take us in different places in our communities or around the world even. And we can't always get the healthiest food. But what I want to kind of like emphasize is if you can cut down, if not cut out, ultra processed foods, things that actually have lots of artificial preservatives, artificial colorings, artificial flavorings, you know, those are the things that actually taste pretty good and we're kind of addicted to from marketing from our childhood. So you've got we've got legitimate reasons why we like these things because they taste pretty good. If you can cut down, if not cut out those things, that's actually going to tip your dietary pattern in your favor. The other thing that I would actually say that would be really helpful is to try to avoid foods with added sugars whenever you can. This is your regular soda. This is actually even your diet soda, which actually has artificial sweeteners added that mess up your gut health and your gut microbiome and actually throw your metabolism off kilter. But stay away from added sugar because we can get plenty of sugar from the regular foods we eat. But if you start stuffing candy bars, you know, the habit we'd had as kids, right? Halloween, get that pillow and stuff it like a gunny sack and go out there and peg out all night long. Look, that's a lot of artificial sugar. And even as adults, we wind up actually snacking that way unconsciously. And it actually overloads our metabolism. That's a fourth thing. And the fifth thing I would actually say is that I want to come back to beverages for a second. You know, besides water, there's two other beverages that I think are go-tos for health. And one is tea. Could be green tea, could be oolong tea, could be black tea. And the other one is coffee. Remarkably, you know, water, tea, and coffee are the go-tos for beverage and health. Now, what you add to them can make a big difference. But, you know, those are five general rules that I think will take anybody else towards the path of health. And by the way, you'll notice that I didn't give any absolutes and I didn't say things that are really unreasonable. So that's probably a good place to start this conversation. Yeah, I love that. And I would imagine that the five tips that you shared probably go in line with what you would recommend for somebody as far as a dietary pattern to follow for longevity. So I guess outside of making sure you're consuming a lot of plants, drinking plenty of water, limiting ultra processed foods, what are a few other like staples that you think people should include within like a dietary pattern if they want to increase their longevity? Right. Okay. So longevity means not only having more birthdays, but also having good quality of life along the way, right? So we want a good, healthy lifespan, not just a long lifespan. If you're gorked out, you know, at 100 years old, or you are blind 100 years old, that would not be worth it. So I think the key to longevity, and you know, this is such an important and popular topic, I think, and it's really driven by science. There's a lot of really exciting things about longevity. I want to make sure people don't forget that you want to, we want to actually be able to enjoy our lives, even as we live longer. Nobody wants to add more miserable years to their life. All right. So having said that, what are the things that are important to us? And I'm going to give you some concrete food things, but I, you know, what you're going to hear me talk about is the framing. Cause I think a lot of times when we hear about nutrition or food as medicine, we hear about individual substances, individual foods, individual recommendations without getting the context. So I think context is important. How do we actually maintain good later years in our life if we want to expand them? Our brains need to work. We need good cognition. What does that require at a minimum? Our brains need to have good blood flow. So we need to protect our circulation. So foods that can actually help protect our circulation, keep our circulation going, are really helpful. Research has shown there's actually a natural chemical that's found in a lot of foods called ursolic acid that actually helps our blood vessel system stay healthy so we have better blood flow. Where do you get ursolic acid? It comes in chestnuts. It comes in fruit peel, which is found on dried fruits, which are a healthy way to actually get a lot of dietary fiber. 
which feeds our gut microbiome, our healthy gut bacteria in our body. And healthy gut bacteria text messages our brain and helps us release social hormones. So we're happy to do the things and see the people that we happen to see. And so this is sort of like a little bit of a contextual idea of some of the foods that we can eat and the reasons why in order to be able to have a good long healthy life i I think number one would be actually a good having a, a brain working really well second one just tell you is you know we want to be able to move we want to actually you know you don't want to be wheelchair bound or paralyzed or or so weak we're unable to be independent or as independent as we possibly can so we need our muscles to be able to function properly now muscles are built and broken down on a daily basis, which is why, you know, young kids are so active and teenagers are working out. And, you know, why we actually try to encourage people to actually exercise is that, you know, use it or lose it is really absolutely true. So we want to use it. Well, in addition to just physically exercising, we need to be able to actually build our muscles. Now, how does our body build our muscles from the time we're born all the way until our advanced ages? Uses stem cells. Now, these are not the stem cells you would get at the strip mall injected into your knee, you know, or your for your tennis elbow or your shoulder. These are stem cells we were born with. And a lot of people don't know this, but humans do regenerate. We were actually formed of stem cells when our mom's egg met our dad's sperm and we were just a ball of cells, all stem cells. And these stem cells that you will want from your jaw and our face and our ears and our livers and our hearts. We have a bunch left over when we're born, about 70 million leftover cells. They're packed away, kind of like on the shelves of Home Depot, you know, extra cans of paint. You can draw on them when you need to. And these stem cells actually will participate in building our muscle over time. So what are some of the foods that actually help us build, help our stem cells come out so they can help to regenerate things? Well, it turns out that extra virgin olive oil turns out to be really helpful for our stem cells. It protects our stem cells as we age. And not surprisingly, in the blue zones, those parts of the world where people live really to healthy, ripe old ages, over 100, for example, centenarians, they tend to eat olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, which, by the way, comes from a plant. It's a plant-based healthy fat. Number two, there's another fat that you should know about that's found associated with protein. That's in seafood, and that's omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3s also help our stem cells regenerate. They prompt our body to stay renewed, which is important for aging. Where do you get omega-3s? Well, besides salmon and anchovies and mackerel and sardines, you hear about that a lot. It turns out many, many, many different kinds of seafoods and even seaweeds actually edible seaweeds actually have omega-3. So one of the things that I write about in my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is leaning into that seafood section of the grocery store, which, you know, some people already like seafood, but some people aren't familiar. And I want to take people's apprehension away to say, dive in there because there's a lot of great stuff. That's a secret to longevity as well. It turns out in many of the blue zones and in many places where people live to a ripe old age, They eat reasonable amounts of seafood regularly, and not surprisingly, this omega-3 is found in there. Now, I'm going to throw one last kind of delight and surprise that can help your stem cells, which help to rebuild your brain and your heart and your muscles, actually is dark chocolate. Turns out, chocolate's a candy, okay? It's a confection. But to make dark chocolate, you have high amounts, 70%, 80%, 90% cacao. Cacao is actually from a seed pod, the cacao plant, and that's a plant-based food. It turns out there's natural chemicals, bioactives in cacao made in dark chocolate at high concentrations that help our stem cells come out and rebuild our muscles, our circulation, many other parts that need to be renewed. And as we get older, one of the things we want to do is we want to continuously be renewed rather than broken down. These are some of the ways that we think about diet and longevity. Those are some great tips and some great foods. As you were naming those foods, I was like, yep, definitely eat that. Yep, definitely eat that. And it just seems like it's pretty consistent too with uh, like the Mediterranean dietary pattern, right? Would you say that that's pretty accurate? Absolutely. And here's the thing that I think is really important to understand about the Mediterranean diet. As you said, that it's a pattern. It's not a single recipe or a single commercial package. 
the Mediterranean is not just Italy and Greece and Spain, which people can pick out in two seconds. But in fact, it's made up of like 27 different countries that all surround the Mediterranean Sea. And most people don't realize this, but Tunisia and Israel, Croatia are all Mediterranean countries. And what that means is that there's a really rich diversity of traditional foods that people have enjoyed. So, you know, for people to say, well, you know, I'm not really into Italian food or I'm not really, I don't know who could, wouldn't be into Italian food, but you know, some people are very picky with their food. What I say is that if you want to look at Mediterranean pattern, you have to appreciate this is more than 20 different countries that have something to offer for you. And similarly, Mediterranean is one pattern of healthy eating, but the other pattern of healthy eating is in Asia because Asians live, uh, there's a long pattern of longevity, it's traditional patterns, lots of seafood, lots of plant-based foods. And here's the cool thing, Doug, is that the Mediterranean in Asia, if you think about restaurant menus, might look like there couldn't be more differences, but then two different types of cuisine. But in fact, the pattern of eating and the things that are in them could not be more connected because 2000 years ago, there was something called the Silk Road. And it was a series of dusty trails that linked China to the Mediterranean. And the traders that did trade silk, but many other things as well, also exchange their ingredients and recipes. And so when you want to think about healthy patterns of eating, please do think about Mediterranean eating and realize that Mediterranean is much more than Italian food. It's a lot of different foods. But now I want you to actually open this up to a kaleidoscope of cuisine that includes Asia and the interconnections between Mediterranean and Asia. And I actually, in my new book, I call this Mediterranean because it really is something that is not new, but thousands of years old. And now it's time for us to kind of really go back and tap that well of culinary genius that's always existed and the stuff tastes great too. And staying on the theme of eating certain foods that can improve our overall quality of life, we talked about olive oil, you talked about seafood that contains omega-3s, you talked about dark chocolate. I know that you're a big fan of polyphenols as well. So I think this would be a good kind of segue to talk about like why you're such a fan of them, what exactly they do, and what are some foods that contain them. We'll get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first I wanted to give a quick shout out to Paleo Valley. I have been a big fan of their products for a while now, and lately I have been addicted to their chocolate bone broth protein. It's decadent, tasty, and a great addition to my smoothie. You hear a lot about the many health benefits of bone broth, and it's commonly referred to as a superfood. With that said, some people don't like the taste of bone broth or are confused about which to buy. Paleo Valley has solved this problem for you. Their bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow-simmered to extract as much collagen protein as possible. You can add it to smoothies like I do, or it makes a great addition to baked dishes, your coffee, or mix with hot water and a little pepper for a filling, collagen-loaded afternoon treat. So if you'd like to join me in drinking the bone broth protein from Paleo Valley, go to www.paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DOUG at checkout, you will get 15% off. Again, it's paleovalley.com, and when you enter in the code DOUG at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. First of all, polyphenols are a research term that describe hundreds of thousands of natural chemicals that are out there. So it's sort of a blanket term for many of these natural chemicals that Mother Nature put into food. Now, these chemicals, I call them Mother Nature's pharmacy, not with a PH, pharmacy, but actually with an F as in farm. See, because these are the things that farmers have been growing, part of our agriculture, and a lot of our plant-based foods. Now, polyphenols by themselves are pretty amazing if you study what they can actually do. They're antioxidant. They can activate epigenetic changes that help our DNA perform better. You know, and there's a lot of popular information out there about polyphenols, and I'm telling you they're present in many, many different types of foods, including the ones, all the ones we've talked about so far. But I will also tell you that when it comes to food and health and polyphenols, it's not just about the food and their polyphenols. It's about how our body responds to the polyphenols that you would ingest. So I'm going to tell you, I've done research looking at how we stay healthy. And it turns out that our health is not just a passive state of being, but in fact, the reason we're healthy is the result of our own body's hardwired health defense systems. We've got five of them. 
angiogenesis, angio blood vessels, how our body grows our circulation. Talked about how important that is for longevity in our brain. Number two, stem cells, regeneration. We regenerate all the time, which is why we're still around tomorrow, is that we're regenerating ourselves. Today, we talked about stem cells growing our muscles, also really important. Polyphenols activate that as well. Our gut microbiome, we touched on that earlier today as well. Polyphenols actually help to groom the healthy gut bacteria that represents part of our ecosystem. This ecosystem of our gut bacteria controls our immunity, helps us lower inflammation, helps our metabolism, and our healthy gut bacteria techs our brain, as I mentioned earlier, to release social hormones. And so polyphenols that help our gut microbiome, our gut health are absolutely critical. Polyphenols also are antioxidant, as I mentioned. They protect our DNA from damage that can happen. Now, most people say, well, why do I need to worry about my DNA? Well, because healthy DNA is responsible for healthy you, healthy proteins, healthy cells, and unhealthy DNA is mutations. And mutations are the reason, the root cause why we develop cancer. And so that's why you want to be careful and why you care about it. And if you don't fix your DNA, repel the incoming missiles that are trying to develop damage your DNA from the environment, you actually wind up actually being at a greater risk for being mutated. And we're not talking about the X-Men. We're talking about the average cancer patient that's out there. Nobody wants to be that person. And if you are someone who's dealt with cancer, you don't want to get it again. And so this is really why polyphenols can be important for DNA. And by the way, one other thing, polyphenols slow down the fuse that involves DNA that burn down on the end of our cells. So, you know, it's like the Mission Impossible, strike a match, light the fuse, the fuse starts burning down. Well, that's really our lifespan. As our DNA starts to wear down and burn down, our life gets shorter and our cellular health, our longevity gets shorter and shorter. So polyphenols slow the burn and in some cases can make the fuse longer again, which is cellular longevity. And that counts as well. And the fifth thing that polyphenols do and it's part of our health defenses, is they light up our immune defenses. And who hasn't thought about immunity over the last few years? We know that you know a good immune system protects us from the common cold and other viruses that might be out there. But I think it's really profound to know that our normal, healthy immune system protects us against cancer because we're forming these little microscopic cancers in our body all the time. And the reason they never grow up is that our immune system We'll take them out. Our immune system normally is like functions like a cop on a beat patrolling through the blood vessels, our circulation, you know, the alleyways, the neighborhoods, the highways of our body and our immune system. When they actually find and spot a microscopic cancer, do what a cop would do. They take a bad guy and throw it into the paddy wagon and take him away. And that's basically why a good, strong immunity is so important on a day to day basis to avert catastrophic disease. And polyphenols can actually do that as well. So you ask a very simple question, why do I care about polyphenols? And I'm saying that, look, polyphenols activate our health defenses. And when our health defenses are activated, we stay healthier longer and are able to repel disease. And speaking of our immune functions and speaking of gut health, I know that one of the things that's really important for our gut is fiber, as you alluded to a few minutes ago. And it seems like based on the dietary patterns that you're talking about and recommending, these plant-heavy diets are going to contain a lot of fiber naturally. If you could explain like why high-fiber diets are so important for people and maybe some potential dangers that can happen if people don't eat enough fiber. Okay, so I'm going to give you a very authentic perspective on this. I'm a medical doctor and MD, and when I went to medical school, I was taught by my professors that dietary fiber is good to eat because it actually helps you, they call it roughage. And it actually, when you actually get it down into your colon, it kind of scrapes along your colon and, you know, and keeps your bowels moving so you're regular and you don't get constipated. And people used to say, well, if your poop doesn't move and it just sits there like a toxic dump, that's actually what causes colon cancer. Well, this was, you know, years ago when I was in medical school, the entire textbook has ripped up and thrown out. And a new way of thinking about dietary fiber is that this fiber, so when we eat something with dietary fiber, let me give you an example. It could be a celery stalk, but I'll tell you something that doesn't seem very fibrousy, which is a pear. Pear doesn't seem like it has a lot of fiber, but it's got six grams 
of dietary fiber, a lot of dietary fiber. And when we eat a pear, we're absorbing our, you know, sort of an upper gut, all the polyphenols and the vitamins and all these great bioactives. And then what the trickle down is to the lower part of our gut is the dietary fiber, right? That's the quote roughage. Now, what we don't absorb goes down the pike of our gut to feed our bacteria. So the roughage we eat, the dietary fiber, actually is the food that we feed our gut microbiome. Now, if you've got a pet, if you've got a dog, a cat, parakeet, goldfish, you are almost certainly conscientious in feeding your pets every single day. And, you know, many people think about, you know, what's the best food I should be feeding them because you care about them and they pay you back, right, with affection and, you know, to help lower stress. Well, this is the same thing with our gut bacteria. If we mindfully feed our pet gut bacteria that lives inside us, by the way, the number of human cells we are made out of is about 40 trillion human cells. And the number of gut bacteria that lives inside us is 39 trillion. So we're almost one-to-one with our bacteria. We got to feed those guys. And we provide them room and board, which is what we're feeding them. And they pay us back for that by releasing these signals and hormones that control our metabolism. They help us use glucose better so we have enough energy and we don't develop prediabetes and active diabetes. They help us heal our wounds faster. So when we were cut or we have surgery, we heal up faster. They help us um, control the amount of body fat that we have. I mean, like you and I sitting here, we might not look like we have a lot of extra body fat, But actually, I'll tell you, you don't have to look big to have a lot of dangerous body fat packed inside a thin frame. They call this, you know, lean obesity. And there's dangerous fat called visceral fat that can be packed around your organs like a baseball mitt holding your kidneys and your heart and your liver. That kind of fat actually predates all kinds of chronic diseases. And good, healthy gut fights that as well, in addition to all the things that, that are good for our mental health and wellness as well. So what I'm saying is that when we feed our gut properly, it pays us back with all these benefits in all different aspects of our health. And when our gut is unhealthy and damaged, all right, what happens is that bad bacteria overgrow good bacteria. The bad bacteria don't don't give us all those benefits. And then what happens is that all those functions start to fall apart. Our metabolism goes haywire. Our blood sugars rise. We get prediabetes. Our wounds don't heal as well. Our immune system goes down. And then mentally, we start getting more agitated as well. You know, it's interesting. Dysbiosis, which is a problem of our gut bacteria, has been connected to depression, schizophrenia, even autism. And so this connection between our gut and our brain is so profound that it really represents one of the new next frontiers of medical research. And that's really why the simple thing that everyone needs to know about who's watching and listening to this is that, you know, if you have a cat and a dog and you're feeding your cat and your dog, just remember you got gut bacteria too. Feed them well, give them some dietary fiber. They will thank you for it and you'll actually be healthier overall. And I know what you've said that you don't like to speak in absolutes in terms of diet, but it seems that you're big on fiber, you're big on vegetables, and there's a lot of information out there, I guess, online where people are seeing that it's super healthy to be fully carnivore and you know, have your diet com- composed of mostly red meat and that vegetables are bad. Like, What do you say to people that believe that? Yeah. Look, I tell people I'm a scientist. And the interesting thing about science is that it builds upon itself with evidence. And you look for new discoveries that help us understand something better. And sometimes the new discoveries build on the old discoveries and make you more certain that something is a truth, right? And of course, there are lots of ideas out there online. And I think the issue about diet and nutrition and philosophy about food, you know, there is a true science of nutrition and food as medicine. And then food and nutrition also has sort of this very emotional component to it, psychological component to it, where it's almost like a religion. You know, you believe in a God, a religion, a a belief, a a philosophy, a school of thought, and either you're for it or you're against it. Well, that's not how science works. And so I can only speak as a scientist. All of the evidence has accumulated to date with real hard scientific evidence has shown that fruits and vegetables, nuts and grains and seeds, healthy oils, seafoods actually overall are good for you. 
Okay. You know, there's caveats, of course, but, you know, and you can always overdo things. But overall, that's a healthy pattern. Listen, I'm not, a, you know, you mentioned a carnivore diet. I'm not against red meat. I'm actually not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian, but I eat mostly vegetables. I would say I'm probably like an 80% vegetarian. I'm a very reasonable guy and I actually enjoy food. I enjoy the tradition. I'm kind of a foodie. I'll eat some meat every now and then, but I really don't think the evidence shows that eating a mostly red meat diet is good for you. In fact, I'll tell you, it's quite the opposite. Most of the evidence is that if you eat heavy proteins, red meat, high in saturated fats, and then you know you can even go to keto and other sources where you have a lot of butter and all that kind of stuff. All the evidence shows that over the long haul, that dietary pattern does not pay off in good health. You might really enjoy that ribeye, you know, finished off with some melted butter. All right. But I can tell you that if you do that every single day for year after year, your body will pay for that. So I think more of a concept of understanding where the body of health lies, being uh, practicing moderation. And you know what? If you really like to eat something, this is the kind of doctor I am. I'm not about absolutes. Talk to me. Tell me what it is that, that really matters to you. I'm okay kind of coaching you a little bit on like, okay, you can have a little bit of that, but just make sure that you don't have too much of it. Spend more time thinking about the good stuff and there'll be less room for the things that aren't so good for you. And you can treat yourself occasionally. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I love that advice. I love that, you know, you kind of have to do what works for you, things in moderation and really just master the foundation of your dietary pattern and making sure you're checking certain boxes. You brought up like diet tribes, food religions, if you will. And I think that also exists in the fasting world where you see people that are just super dogmatic about fasting, like fasting is the only way to do this, that, and the other. I know this is one of the things you talk about in your new book. So what are your thoughts on fasting? And do you think it actually is worth the hype? Listen, I'm so glad that you asked me about that because my new book is titled Eat to Beat Your Diet. And it's not a diet book. In fact, it's kind of an anti-diet book because it actually shows you, it's a little bit of a kind of a trick title. It actually shows you how you can be healthy without having to jump onto a ship of an extreme point of view or an extreme practice. And let's talk about fasting for a second. You know, here's the reality. And I think that you're probably sensing this from our conversation today. I'm a pretty reasonable person, but I'm uncompromising when it comes to science. Here's the fact. We actually all fast anyway. Fasting is what happens when we're sleeping and we're not eating. That's the definition of fasting. So whether you're sleeping for five hours a day, six hours a day, hopefully seven or eight hours a day, which is healthy sleep, during that period of time, all right, we're not eating. And that's called fasting. And when we get up, take a shower, get dressed, go down to the kitchen and you know pour ourselves something, we are breaking our fast, which is why it's called breakfast. All right. And so there's really no religion or crazy breakthrough idea about fasting. It's how the body's wired. When we're sleeping, we're not eating or fasting. When we eat, we're actually breaking our fast. Now, what is new and what does actually help argue for increasing the period that we're not eating, meaning increasing our lengthening our fasting time, is that when we're fasting, we are allowing our metabolism, the way that our body's hardwired, okay, our operating system, to be able to actually burn down extra fuel. Let me explain this to you. So when we eat food, okay, when we're breaking our fast, okay, which is breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe some snacks, all right, what we're doing, and this is what metabolism is all about, it's all about fuel. Just like when you're driving a car, you got to load fuel into your car at the filling station, when it's loaded up, you can actually get in your car and drive away, and the engine uses that fuel to keep you powered. That's what we do when we're eating. We're eat, putting fuel into our body, and then we're actually going about our day. We're actually burning our gas, our fuel. Now, what happens is that our body's hardwired so that when we are eating, we can't burn that fuel, okay? Like our body is in completely in storage mode. It's only when we're not eating, okay, that we're actually able to burn that fuel down. So think about this. The longer we're not eating, let's say sleeping late, okay, or just not eating before you go to sleep, no midnight snack, and maybe having a late breakfast or maybe even skipping breakfast, you're extending the period of time where your body's able to burn down fuel. Well, what happens? You're actually cleaning your pipes. You're burning that extra fuel that you might have accumulated from the day before, the day before that, and your metabolism is actually just burning down that fuel because 
you're working on that hardwired system, that operating system where when you're not eating, you're able to burn down fuel. So you want to stay trim and lean. You want to lose harmful extra body fat, lower inflammation. Fasting actually does that for you. And by the way, other systems also respond well to that energy burning, fuel burning stage. Your circulation improves, your stem cells improve, your gut microbiome use that as a period to reboot itself. Your DNA is able to stand back from all the stuff you might pour into the body. And your immune system also improves as well. Reboot. So fasting is actually normal and kind of good for you. This idea. So I'm trying to tell you, we already intermittently fast just by going to bed. All right. And we can tweak it now because we're beginning to understand if you fast a little bit longer, it's better for you. But this idea that you have to fast until you go into ketosis and then you, you know, if you fast for days on end, you know, these kind of extreme ideas. Okay. They might be okay for the short term. Your body's not going to like it for the long term, I guarantee you. And it's going to wear down your health eventually. And so it's just like you want to fuel your car on a regular basis and you never want to overfill it. So that's another kind of caveat to this whole thing. But you want to run things normally. And for people that want to live long and prosper, you know, that old Star Trek Spock kind of thing, you want to be reasonable. And you want to enjoy your life and you want to do things that are not too unreasonable. And that's why these extreme patterns are really unsustainable and don't give you pleasure as well. So I'm all about sustainability, pleasure and biology all at the same time. Absolutely. And I think fasting can be a great tool too to keep your calories in check if your goal is weight loss and trying to lose weight because it reduces your, your eating window. I know that weight loss is a theme of your new book as well. And you talk about some new things as it relates to that. And I know typically when people think of weight loss, they say that you know you, it revolves around like energy expenditure and calories in, calories out. That you're like what you're consuming versus what you're like how much you're moving and stuff like that. Like, what are your thoughts on weight loss and like what other insights do you have to share on that that's featured in your new book? Yeah, well, so my book does talk a lot about weight loss and foods that have been shown in human research that allow you to lose weight. Now, this is not the quick fix, lose 20 pounds in two weeks kind of thing. I mean, there are things that you can do to aim for that, but it's not healthy for you. It's not sustainable. But what I really talk about is how I kind of uncloak how human metabolism works. So how many of us have heard this idea that, well, you're born with either a fast metabolism genetically or a slow metabolism? And people will point out, look at my sister. She was so lucky. She was born with a fast metabolism. That's why she's skinny as a stick and eat anything. And that's has a problem. And then they always point me. On the other hand, I was born with a slow metabolism. My genetics aren't really good. And so I've been struggling with my weight the whole time. And that's a very common kind of, it's a common idea that's out there, but it's an urban legend. And I'll tell you when this urban legend was overturned just about a year ago, there was a landmark study that changed everything we know about human metabolism. And this was done by a study by a researcher named Herman Ponzo out of Duke University. And he studied 6,000 people involving 19 countries. Okay. And he studied metabolism in people across the human lifespan from two days old to 95 years old, the entire human lifespan and studied 6,000 people in exactly the same way. By the way, these people were male and female, men and women, girls and boys. They were um, young and old. They were healthy and sick. Some of them had diabetes. Some of them had big body frames. Some of them were skinny. And when they studied the metabolism in exactly the same way, here's what they did. They gave everybody a drink of water, H2O is what we call water, in which the H of hydrogen and O of water, oxygen, had a special atomic signature, not radioactive, but everybody drank the same. Now you can measure in the lab the hydrogen and oxygen, and therefore your metabolism in your breath, in your urine, in your blood. And so imagine this, 6,000 people across the human lifespan from days old to 90 years old in exactly the same way. And they looked at the metabolism. What did they find? All over the map, scattergram. Everything is completely confusing. And so they said, oh, well, you know, isn't this what we just expect is that everyone's got a different metabolism? Well, that's not where the breakthrough came. The breakthrough came, they developed an algorithm right, in which they could actually subtract out from the results of the study, the contribution of excess body fat, okay, we call fat adipose tissue. When you actually employed this algorithm to remove from the scatter of data, remove the effects of excess body fat, it was like bada bing, human metabolism emerged only four phases of metabolism 
across humans over the course of life. Everyone followed the same exact same pattern. So the inner workings of our metabolism are exactly the same. This idea that you were born with fast or slow, completely wrong. And the four phases are absolutely fascinating. Zero to one, your metabolism skyrockets when you're a baby to one year old. At one year old, your metabolism, baby's metabolism is faster, 50% faster than their, their metabolism as an adult, okay? Which is surprising. From one year old to 20 years old, all the way through puberty, when you see kids sprouting up, when they're super active, when they're eating two dinners, teenagers, okay, metabolism is going down, 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 down. Okay, to, so completely different than what we thought. From age 20 to age 60, metabolism is completely rock stable is how we are hardwired. This is through your first job. This is through your pregnancy. This is through your menopause. All right, it's exactly the same. And then from age 60 to 90, it does decline a little bit, only about 17%. By the time you're 90, compared to when you were 60, which is the same as compared to your 20. So when you're 90 years old, our hardwired metabolism is only 17% lower than when you were 20. Now, here's what happens. So that's the pattern of human metabolism. Like It's a bombshell, but this is how we're actually wired. Now, what happens is that when you start adding back the effects of body fat into that equation, what do you think happens? You take this beautiful four-stage pattern and you start to suppress it. Okay, so you squash the metabolism. So it's not that slow metabolism causes you to gain body fat and gain weight. It's that extra body fat and weight squashes your metabolism. It's completely the other way around. And the reason that that's why that's important, and back to your question about, so what do I think about weight loss? I think that not everyone needs to lose weight, but everyone needs to understand that excess body fat, including skinny people that might not be able to see their body fat, it could be packed like peanuts inside a thin frame. Like, okay, you go to FedEx, you're going to ship, you know, some long fluorescent lights. You're going to put the lights in the box. And you're going to add peanuts in it. You can overpack peanuts, tape it up, still a skinny box, but it's way overstuffed. And in our skinny bodies, in a skinny body, you can have that, those extra peanuts, that harmful fat choking your organs and releasing really harmful inflammatory substances. So here's what I think. I think we should all try to aim at getting back to our baseline metabolism so we can be who our body wants us to be from a metabolic perspective. And part of that is by fighting extra body fat. We can do this with exercise and we need to stay active, but we can also do that with by eating food. And so this is the kind of the irony of what I write about. You can eat to beat your fat. And there's even more surprises because you can actually harness and leverage good fat to burn down bad fat. And so this is there's all these series, really surprises that turn the equation around. Don't fear your food. Use your food. Don't fear your fat because we need some fat to, to live. You need to tame your fat and so on and so forth as it relates to weight loss. That's such interesting stuff because I was always one of those kids too who was like, man, that person's just lucky they have a fast metabolism or she's just lucky she has a fast metabolism. And you're right. We hear this all the time. So let's just say we have that person that might be reading your book. They're listening to this podcast and they're like, wow, I do have a bunch of extra body fat to lose. I want to be able to, in a way, jumpstart my metabolism and do what I can to control my metabolism so that I can get rid of this stuff as fast and a healthy way as possible. Like, what are a few things that you think are shown by science or that you could recommend to help them do that? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. So first of all, in my book, I read about 150 foods. I think this is the first book that I ever did is 150 foods that have been shown by human clinical research that they can actually improve your metabolism, decrease the amount of body fat, reduce your waistline, and improve things like your blood sugars and your insulin sensitivity and the healthy hormones that relate to your metabolism. Okay. And so I think this is the first book ever to put together this compendium of all these foods. So let's pick a few out. Okay. Because we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll pick a few standouts. All right. Turns out tomatoes have a lot of good things about them. They're a great source of vitamin C. They're, they do have some dietary fiber, but they also have these bioactives, natural chemicals called carotenoids, one of them called lycopene. Lycopene, many people might have heard about, but lycopene is a fat-fighting bioactive. Here's what it does. It actually takes our harmful fat, 
it helps to burn it down by activating a special kind of fat we have in our body called brown fat. So brown fat can, good fat can burn down white fat, which is harmful fat, dangerous fat, and eating tomatoes will light that up. It kind of lights up the space heater and uses fuel so you can improve your metabolism, improves your metabolic profile overall, lowers bad cholesterol. This is all with tomatoes and actually shrinks your waistline as well. One study that was done actually took normal, healthy young women who were not overweight or obese, okay, because many researchers, many, much, a lot of research is done with people who are already overweight, but this is actually taking young, healthy female grad students who don't have extra weight. They're considered normal body size, whatever that means, okay? That, that, that can be debated, but the bottom line is that they had just one tomato to eat before lunch every day, and they were able to lose weight and improve their metabolism. Very achievable dosing. So tomato can actually do it. Here's another one. Strawberries have also been shown to actually improve your metabolism. And what's really interesting by eating strawberries is that although strawberries can be sweet, when they measured blood sugar, eating strawberries in a way to improve your metabolism, not only decreased weight and uh, waist size and lowered weight and decreased body fat, it also didn't raise blood sugar. So this whole idea, another kind of like common idea that's kind of a uh, kind of like a paintbrush idea. Eh, don't eat fruit. It's got too much sugar in it. It's got too much fructose. It might kind of sound like it makes sense on a casual level, but the science actually doesn't show that. And the reason is that the bioactives in the strawberry activate your body. So it starts to burn down the bad fat. Okay. So you can actually metabolize even faster. This is, by the way, not about trying to become a supermodel. This is about optimizing your engine of your body. And I think that's something that we really want to be able to emphasize. Look, People that want to actually look like, you know, a supermodel, they want to fit into a bikini body back, they need to get into a wedding dress, they need to actually get you know, go for a, a bodybuilding competition. Those are short term things that people do extreme things for. Okay. I'm not categorically against that. I'm just saying that, and what I write about in my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is we should all be trying to do things that are good for our health over the course of our lifetime if we want to live long and prosper you know, and thrive. This is what longevity is all about. So another food that can actually actually have incredible benefits is actually tea. Just sipping green tea actually has been shown to decrease excess body fat as well. So remember I told you this experiment where you know you when you remove the effects of body fat, your real metabolism starts to shine. And when you add unhealthy foods and you add extra fat back, you'll start to suppress your metabolism. So this is really the concept. We have a hardwired program inside us that goes through four phases of metabolism. If you want to be all you can be, work on some of the body fat, work on the metabolisms. You can eat foods like tomatoes and strawberries and green tea. And there's 150 other foods, including seafoods that I have in there that can all work in harmony to help you get there. And so this isn't about a fad diet. This is really about a lifestyle and trying to embrace and enjoy your life as well. Yeah. And I think from what I also understand is a lot of this comes back to satiety as well. I mean, that's why, you know, people who eat a decent amount of protein, it can be good for your metabolism and weight loss because it keeps you fuller longer. And it seems like that's the same with what you're saying, especially with some of these foods that contain a decent amount of fiber, because one of the other benefits of fiber is it keeps you fuller longer, right? That's right. That's right. So when you eat, like if you ate a bean burrito, okay, provided it doesn't have a ton of unhealthy things in it, you're going to be feel full longer. It's not because the beans are heavy. It's because there's a lot of fiber in the beans and the fiber feature gut microbiome. And that actually sets into motion this series of signals in your brain that may just make you less hungry. Now there's a hormone actually that does this. It's made by body fat called leptin. Some people may have heard of leptin, but we all, you know, it's all part of this. Remember I told you like intermittent fasting is natural. Leptin is natural. So we have a little bit of fat in our body, which we need. And when we eat and our stomach gets full, one of the things that happens is that the full stomach sends a signal, text messages our body fat, and our body fat releases some leptin. The leptin, okay, travels in our bloodstream to our brain and and our brain receives the leptin signal, the text messages. And that leptin says, hey, you know what? Slow down, man. Like you're full. Just slow down and stop. All right. And that's basically what, when we feel full in front of a dinner plate, like it's because our fat is signaling our brain saying, all right, you know, chill out, man. Like stop, slow down and stop. 
All right, now here's what happens when you've got too much body fat, lots of leptin gets produced. And the funny thing that we don't totally understand is your brain stops reading the leptin. It doesn't read the signal anymore. And so even though you make more leptin, you're always hungry and you never stop eating. And so basically what you want to do is to tame that fat so your brain becomes more sensitive to leptin and leptin will tell you, chill out. And by the way, when you eat, if you eat too quickly, you'll outstrip the speed of your signal that your stomach is full and your fat will make the leptin. So you can chuck a ton of food into your gut and you can overeat really easily if you eat super fast. And so this is another kind of like trick to actually optimize your metabolism is eat the healthy, eat the right stuff, but eat more slowly. Don't wolf your food down because you'll beat your body's ability to signal, to turn on the off switch and then you'll overload. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to eat slowly. I've also heard like eat till you're about like 80% full or something like that. And I think these are, can be some great tools that you can do as you're eating to not eat as much. And if your goal is to lose weight, this will likely help you to do that as well. I want to shift gears just a little bit. You talked about how somebody can be lean, but quote unquote, also obese in your research, even in your practice, like, do you believe that people who are obese can still be metabolically healthy? Okay. So here's a way that I want people to think about the idea of body size, right? And I want you to think about healthy people, super healthy people. They can have different body sizes. And how do we know this? Look at Olympic athletes. You've got your tiny little gymnasts. You've got your shot putters. You've got your lean track stars. You've got your svelte ice figure skaters. There's a champion. There's an Olympian in every body size category. And then if you want to take a look at another sport like boxing, you got 14 weight categories, you got featherweight to heavyweight, and there's a champion, there's a world champion and everything there. And then if you want to really look at an extreme, look at sumo. These are behemoths, three to 400 pounders, right? People would call them obese. And yet actually they don't suffer from the diseases that you would normally think about heart disease and diabetes and cancer. They don't actually get them and, and yet, and they're in super fit shape. All right. And so the first thing that I think is really important is to, for us to kind of rethink this idea that large body size is equated to poor health. Size matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. What's actually happening inside matters a lot more. So back to your question, if somebody has got a large body size, can they ever be healthy or are they stuck being unhealthy? And what I would say is that the science tells us you can unleash your inner metabolism by focusing on ways that allow you to burn down harmful body fat, including the stuff you can't see, which is packed inside your body, whether you're thin or big, and you'll actually start to improve your health overall. So I think that there's a different measure, like true health isn't visible in the mirror. That's the key thing. And you can't measure it automatically on a scale. And yet that's what we have come to think is that when you step out of the shower in the morning, out of the corner of your eye, you look in the mirror and you see some lumps and bumps, you know, like, oh man, that really stinks. I must not be as healthy as I can be. I got to go to the gym where you step on the scale. The number that comes up isn't the one that you want to see. And you kind of like, you know, you have some self-loathing about that. It's a wrong way to think about it. The fact of the matter is that we are all hardwired to be healthy. We've got health defenses. Our metabolism is there. And so what we want to do, if people haven't thought about this before, it's never too late to take advantage of the new science that says we can make these little moves, little adjustments, and eat delicious food at the same time to help us kind of maneuver our way towards better health, regardless of your body size. I love that you said that because I think so many people, they get caught up on focusing on the scale as their only metric. And I think obviously it can be a great tool depending on your fitness goals. It's something that could be consistently used to make sure that you're on track, whether your goal is to gain weight or lose weight or whatever. But it also sometimes gets masked as the only way to determine if you're healthy or not. And there's plenty of people like you, you touched on that are not quote unquote overweight physically, but they're overweight like internally because of the way they're eating and their poor food choices and maybe they're not active and what have you. And so I think it's important to, like you said, kind of control what you can, make sure you're fueling yourself with the right types of foods for longevity, making sure you're moving your body, and then making sure, I think also, 
would you say it's also important to get labs done to make sure that markers for things like cholesterol and ApoB and glucose and stuff like that, that you're able to monitor those things as well? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'm a biologist, but I would say that I'm philosophically not a biohacker. But I do think as a dolphin, to know whether you're making progress, that would be sort of the way I would do it. And the last question I have for you kind of stays on this theme of medical practice and going to a doctor and getting labs done. I know you're obviously a physician and you also talk about food as medicine. If you could maybe just explain the difference between the two, like when do you think it's a good time to look at food? And then when do you believe like medication and stuff is actually necessary? Yeah. Well, look, first of all, I built a whole career developing biotech drugs. I mean, I've helped to develop 43 FDA approved drugs for cancer, complications of diabetes, and even blindness. So, I am not somebody who shies away from medicine. I'm actually trying to develop better medicines to help us overcome unbeatable diseases. So I do think it's important. However, medicines, drugs are just one of the tools in the toolbox. And in fact, you go to the doctor to get a prescription or go to the hospital if you're sick enough to get an intervention, which might involve medications, but that's not healthcare. Healthcare doesn't happen in your doctor's office. Healthcare happens between visits to your doctor's office. And healthcare is what we do for ourselves. We care for your own health. Doctors are trained to try to fight disease. Now, a doctor should really be trained to help you stay healthy as well. But I'm just telling you the facts that, in fact, most of the doctors are trained. And the way that I was trained is really to diagnose and treat disease largely with pharmaceuticals. Healthcare is up to us, man. And it's something that, you know, we're able to do. And that's where food comes in, because food is the medicine that we put into our body three times a day. That's called food is medicine. You put good stuff into your body, your body's going to last longer. You add bad things into your body, it's not going to last as long. And by the way, I use the analogy, we talked about the car again and fuel. Food is not only fuel, but food is medicine as well. If you actually, but looking at the fuel thing, if you put bad quality fuel in your car, your engine's not going to last that long. Okay. If you put good quality fuel in your car, that's part of the caretaking you do to make sure that your vehicle is going to last a longer time. You're caring for it. That's where food comes in. Now, what's really interesting, Doug, is that there's new research that shows even when you're using medicine like cancer drugs to try to help people survive their cancer, that the food that you eat, the dietary fiber, the polyphenols, the things we talked about earlier, actually can make the cancer treatments, some of the cancer treatments work better. And there's nowhere more profound than this in some recent studies done by the MD Anderson Cancer Center, where they looked at melanoma, deadly cut to skin cancer, being treated with immunotherapy that boosts your own immune system to fight and wipe out the cancer. And they found that people would do much better. Their cancer would respond much better to their own immune system prompted by the immunotherapy if they were eating dietary fiber. In fact, what they found was profound. Six grams of dietary fiber a day would lower the risk of mortality by 30%, three zero. That's huge. That means that the food that you eat, and by the way, how much is it six grams of dietary fiber? And we talked about this. An average size, medium-sized pear has six grams of dietary fiber. Imagine if more people knew about that, more oncologists knew about that, That difference is something that is not done in a doctor's office. They're not giving you a sack of pears. That's what people, you know, like most oncologists tell their patients, go off and eat whatever you want. Just don't lose any weight. Eat as much. You want to go eat junk food. That's fine. Totally not. The science is now telling us that there are things that we can deliberately choose. It's not food versus medicine. It's food and medicine that can help our treatments work better. Obviously, ultimately, this is my goal as a doctor is to come help people come off their medications. If you can come off your statins so your blood cholesterol is better, if you can come off your metformin so your blood sugars are better, that would be the goal that we all have. Use medicines when you need them. The goal should be to come off the medicines, but your doctor's not going to be doing that for you. You're going to have to participate and be the leader in that so you can actually get back to who your body wants you to be, how it was hardwired. That's what my books are about, Eat to Beat Disease, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is really harnessing and empowering yourself to make those decisions that are inside us. That, to me, is really the secret sauce to health and longevity.
That's some great wisdom and perspective there, Dr. Lee. And like you said, like medicine is obviously a great tool, but during the times where you're not using medication or you're not taking the drug or whatever it is, you have to be working on your overall health and making sure you're fueling yourself right, making sure you're exercising, making sure you're spending time with great people and living a, a healthy a healthy life. And so I think people are going to really connect with you. They're going to want to buy your new book. They're going to want to check out more of your work. Where's the best place for people to do that? Yeah, well, you can buy my books, including my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, anywhere books are sold, whether it's online or at your local bookstore. I'm a big believer in sort of like the low, local family-run bookstores. But if you really want to actually also stay up with the science, because I drink from a fire hose of new research, come to my website, drwilliamlee.com, Dr. William Lee, sign up for my newsletter. I teach a metabolism mini course. I do master classes. I give away, you know, like tips and recipes and sheets like that. I just feel like this is the kind of my mission is actually to get information out to people that they can translate into their own lives. So come to my website, drdrwilliamleeli.com and find out more because we've had this like wide spanning conversation today, but there's so much more that people actually can learn. Yeah, there's so much more there. And I, I will make sure to plug the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Dr. Lee shared about tips for people to improve their diet quality or some of the things people can do for longevity. Maybe it was something that he shared about fiber, weight loss, polyphenols, metabolism. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Dr. Lee and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.